0: Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is episode 16, 2021 Forecast. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Today I am here with Chris Huang and Chris Hans. How's it going today, guys?
1: Going
2: well. Doing pretty good. Just yep. getting ready for the new year.
0: Yeah, you're. you're, you're you feel bad. You're saying a, a mournful goodbye to 2020.
2: You know, I I don't know if you guys have seen the memes, <laughs> but it's like they're saying like 2021 is like how 2020 actually won, like W O N.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I'm hoping that 2021 is a good year. I'm just going to put that out there. Not to say that I'm disappointed. We did launch the podcast in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. So I think uh, I'm thankful as that is an outcome. I don't know if we, if I would have done it had it not been for that. I don't know if that would have pushed me over the edge to send out a tweet into the ether.
2: And for uh, hey. listeners who can't see, Chris just threw some salt over his shoulders. they so are okay.
0: Oh, that's good. I'm touching wood. I'm, I'm touching some fine oak. So it's okay. Uh, so for this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than put together a, a usual segment uh, with the news or EdTech tips, or do an interview, we decided to do our predictions, our EdTech predictions for 2021. So we have 10 predictions we're all reading from apple notes that's our new workflow high tech high tech here uh we have different name i put different names beside them i should probably should have told you folks that beforehand but i put some different names so we uh for the people who came up with them and we've kind of ranked them um how did we rank these by obvious to least obvious our goal was to build some tension so perhaps the most ridiculous went to the top
2: yeah, a I don't little know. bit of that. And I, I would say probably a little bit of more like certainty as well. A lot of the ones that we have up front are probably to the more severe side of things. Um, that,
0: yeah, that's true. It's bit, maybe it becomes more of a, a less likely prediction as it gets to number one. But that makes it more interesting, so people will clearly listen to the end. And some of them have already started to come true which just goes to show how good our forecast is. But we think it's going to continue to happen, so we've left them on the list. So with further ado, uh, let's do it. Let's start with our 10 predictions, uh, starting with number 10.
1: All right, so number 10, it's going to be the year of the unicorns. And for those of you who don't know what a unicorn is, In business, any company that uh, gets a valuation, a market valuation of a billion dollars is classified as a unicorn. And, you know, this is something that uh, when we were coming up with the list, uh, we already in the last few days, we've seen some companies, uh, for example, this one in China that is called Wanfu Do. and uh, they have just uh, uh, raised a significant amount of money. And actually Jack Ma from Alibaba has um, invested through his uh, uh, capital fund. But um, yeah, I think there's probably, I think this is one of the ones that is pretty obvious. Uh, there's a lot of uh, demand now, especially as this next year, most likely a fair amount, maybe even the whole year, may be through remote. And so there's uh, a lot of companies um, that are looking to get into the educational technology market.
0: And do we think some of them are going to be scooped up once they hit a billion? I don't know if that makes it less likely that they'll be absorbed by a larger company or more likely.
1: Well, I think like some uh, some of the ones uh, or the episodes that I've been listening to just in other podcasts. uh, One thing that came up was like maybe companies like Dropbox or Box might actually get acquired or even uh, some people were saying Adobe. Um, So who knows? I mean, I I think Adobe is fairly big. I I could see maybe Adobe might go and acquire other companies, but um, who knows? I mean, uh, especially when you have a lot of these companies like Apple and Google uh, that have now got into the multi-trillion valuation, they can pick up these companies for peanuts.
0: That is a good point. I, I wonder sometimes about I, I think, I mean, I think you're right. I think that, that there's going to be more of these ed tech unicorns as time goes on this year. I, I think that's for sure. I think that's, and I think it'll be interesting to watch. It'll be no shortage of news for the podcast. I think it'll be, I think that maybe would even make for a good consistent segment unicorn of the month if we can find one. I wonder about acquisitions sometimes. This is a bit of a side note. I read somewhere that large acquisitions, regardless of how big the company or how uh, how big the company is or how deep their pockets are, is very difficult because if Apple, let's say, goes to acquire Adobe, which they would never be able to do and the antitrust lawsuits would uh, come out everywhere. I've heard that that's very difficult just because you have two big companies essentially merging and they have different corporate cultures, and that just doesn't work very well.
1: yeah, well, is that I mean, a fallacy? I... Something like that. It's not necessarily the case, but you look at uh, look at, for example, Skype. Right. So Skype was actually owned by eBay, and then they spun it off. Uh, Microsoft has bought it, and you know, from a video conferencing standpoint, Skype should have been the dominant player. And under um, Microsoft's reign, they haven't capitalized. And I guess they're obviously probably rolling it out in their teams. Um, platform and so on Uh, but you know i think it's a missed opportunity especially given that skype was the dominant video conferencing platform out there
0: yeah you make a good point about about skype though a funny thing Mm -hmm. teams is doing so well in 2020 that it has now kicking slack's ass it has totally is starting to surpass slack in terms of user installs features being rolled out i'm wondering uh if salesforce made a big mistake by buying slack because they're on the ropes now because mostly the stuff from skype that made it so great the technology has been rolled into teams right so i think that's what it's going to become like you said they've kind of rebranded it and it works a lot more like zoom rather than having to friend people and do all that stuff before you can have a call you can send out links and stuff i wonder uh I wonder if if that was a big mistake for Slack to be bought by Salesforce because they, what did they pay for it? Like twenty billion, like a humongous amount of money, right? I thought it was a cheap. It makes Instagram's acquisition by Facebook for two billion look really cheap. I used to call, I used to call the Instagram acquisitions when an acquisition happened. I said that I used to say that was like six Instagrams because that became like the unit, and I, I don't even think it works anymore because like ten Instagrams at two billion is like the minimum. It seems like every acquisition is like twenty billion dollars or more. It's like out of control.
2: Yeah, change your unit to tenstagram.
0: Oh to oh, Tenstigram. That's a good one. Yeah, you know two good one.
2: Grams, three tensograms. Um I guess one one thing on this, just out of the just the even you no know, Newswire and other, you know, associated press reporting on kind of industry growth, even before kind of the pandemic kicked off Predicting like a consistent annual growth rate of about 17% in the ed tech industry worldwide, and we're looking at like nine billion dollars of additional funding in India. That's in the U.S. Um, about the same amount out of China as well. And so I think the pandemic's just kind of really accelerated this, and that's going to push us over the edge to where we're talking about this unicorn status that Chris has brought up. And the other thing as well, um, a lot of big focus on machine learning and uh, Artificial intelligence—that's really kicking off as well. That's being incorporated mm-hmm. to to maximize a lot of these technologies. So, I think as companies and institutions are looking towards kind of digital age and you know pushing that further, that's where things are kind of headed. So, it's uh, just a catalyst that we've really seen.
0: And and perhaps for the, for the good. I mean, I think edtech in many ways is lagged behind for a long time. So it would be nice to see investment in better tools. And we've seen some pretty cool ones even come out this year, right? Um, well, that kind of leads into number nine. Did you want to take, I put our names beside them. Chris, I think you have nine and eight.
1: All right. So number nine, course delivery, there's going to be a permanent mutation. And by that, <laughs> we're... Basically saying that uh, uh, when we do get back into the face-to-face or this new normal, the new normal will consist of hybrid delivery. And uh, we've kind of touched on this in the past uh, where we're developing all these online materials, you know, investing all this time, effort, energy into it. Do you really just want to dump it down the drain or are you going to go and now utilize that and leverage all that work that we've put in? And so uh, I think that there it creates this opportunity for hybrid. I think the same will happen even for work-wise, whereas in the past, you know, uh, it was kind of unheard of to be able to work remotely or, uh, you know, you'd have to come into the office. And I think realistically, there's probably going to be a hybrid there where uh, maybe instead of working five days a week in the office, maybe you'll get like one or two days where you have flex time or work out of a cafe or your house or what have you.
0: If we're allowed on cafes.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess on the topic of um, on courses, maybe Eric as the academic, you I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Why would we as students, I mean, it's a question we have all the time. Why aren't we allowed more online courses? What's the roadblock for institutions? Um, and incentives for offering more courses online giving more flexibility because i mean that's the number one thing we talk about the college students that want to roll out of bed at noon if they don't even have to leave their bed and hop on the train to get to campus and just log on Um, more and more students would go for that so it's a kind of a constant question i know throughout my academic career right from the beginning that's been a constant thing it's Hey, why aren't these like, why won't the school just let us take this damn class online? You know, I can't fit in my schedule, like conflicting timetables. You know, I can't run across campus in time. Man, it'd just be so much easier if I could just do it online. Is there, what was the big kind of roadblock for a lot of these institutions? Do Do we know?
0: I don't know that there's an intentional roadblock. I think part of it too, there's a bunch of things that universities used to explicitly say they were teaching in addition to the course content um, that we don't really focus on so much anymore. So I'll give you an example. So one of the reasons that the calendar system for courses is laid out the way it is, uh, and there's somewhat of a sacrifice for student flexibility was because university, in addition to teaching someone to be a political scientist or a business major or whatever, the structure that a university provided used to be more analogous to working in an office environment. So there is some historical precedent, as as I understand it, for structuring the university in such a way that you go to a place where you are accountable because um, online programs were kind of out of sync to some degree with the world uh, when there wasn't remote work. So that may be obsolete now. You make a really good point. Now that the world has changed and there may be more flexibility in remote work on the ability to work where you want. Perhaps universities don't have to teach that face-to-face, you show up, you're dressed well, you're you're prepared, just like you would be if you had to present something or participate at a board meeting. You have to participate in the class. I think that's some of the logic behind why that has been done. Uh, but that may change. I mean, if the world doesn't look like that anymore, there's no reason that the university needs to cater to it. But I, my understanding is that the university, outside of the content that it taught a big part of it was to teach some sort of um in-person accountability.
2: Yeah, well it's interesting to me right because I think uh we've had stories or I I've, I've certainly heard it I've experienced it myself. I'm sure a lot of people can can relate where you've seen people in your lectures show up in pajamas <laughs> and you see people just roll out of bed and show up right like it happens all the time. Um, you know, right and so You know, most classes, I would argue, don't have a participation component. It's kind of show up if you do, show up if you don't, Um, not condoning or condemning either way. I mean, it's kind of students' choice for their learning. Um, I know, you know, particularly that's true for some of the more academic courses, I would argue, um, where discussion and discourse is really necessary. That's true. I think your point stands well, Eric, where it's important that, you know, people show up. Those are the courses that incorporate that participation. But I'd say by and large, um, it's not really, you know, we've not really had that. So that's kind of um, just something that I, I was curious about. And part of the reason why I bring this topic up entirely is because when we look at the current offerings, we have some online courses, very few and far between, but online courses that are offered strictly online, and that's it. And you have all your other in-person classes that are offered in-person. I'm talking pre-pandemic of course, right? So we have a specific segment of courses that are specifically reserved and can only be taken online. There's no other way to go about it. And so what does this hybrid model actually look like? It's kind of my question, and it would be interesting to see. right? I, I imagine it's going to be a bit of both, where we do have that, as you mentioned, Eric, like a hybrid learning, in the, in the truest sense of the word, where we have mm-hmm. parts of the class that you'd show up for, and maybe a week you don't have to show up, and you know, every, every three classes you show up, something like that. Um, but I'd be interested to see if there's going to be a more emergence of strictly online available courses or a option for students to take a class online or in person or even the hybrid. I mean, that's logistically a nightmare for institutions to, to have and for instructors to prepare for. But I think that the you know, kind of the democratization of education and the continuing um, advocacy of students to you know, really champion what they want is kind of driving us to this particular point. I and mean, I think certain institutions, particularly those that are very focused on pedagogy as opposed to something like research, are going to be moving in that direction. And we're going to see tons of permutations and combinations of this. I you yeah. disagree.
0: No, I don't disagree. I mean, I don't, I, I really like the student involvement. I, I tend to take a minority position, but it's it's not one or the other. Um, I hold many very unpopular positions in academia, to be perfectly honest. And and I'm okay with that because I'm not a jerk about it. Uh, some people are. Uh, here's my concern. Looks aside, whether your hair is brushed and your teeth are brushed and you're not wearing pajamas, I think that a faculty members' lack of enforcement or holding um, a portion of the grade towards attendance is probably a mistake. And that is not, uh, exclusive to face-to-face courses. I, I think that actually should be the case online too. An online world that allows for more flexibility when someone takes the course is excellent. I don't have any disagreement with that. I think it's a great idea to allow people the flexibility but I still think that unless it's a totally asynchronous course, if there is some synchronous elements, there should be accountability for people showing up or not. Um, because ultimately someone is preparing a lecture, they're preparing activities and it's their time. That's why they're paid to be there. If people don't show up and there's no incentive to, um, then the university is kind of failing at Uh, that lesson of accountability, which I do think is somewhat important for academia, regardless of its hybrid, online, or face-to-face. I don't think that those are incompatible. Um, I'm trying to think of what was the other thing that you mentioned. I don't think I've addressed all of it.
2: Well, I I think that's the bulk of it, Eric. Um, I mean, realistically, my kind of point to all this is, where do we end up seeing uh, the line being drawn for academics, you know, to and and the policies that institutions are going to implement to hold students accountable when we go to between two accommodating and not accommodating enough. We have the webcam debate we've talked about before. The different um, attendance and you know online things. What's what are the permutations and combinations that we're going to allow for students? You know, uh, in a particular course section. Then we're saying, okay, you can take it online, you can do it hybrid, you can do it um, in person. And then the synchronous and asynchronous variations, or permut- permutations and combinations of each of those, and now you have like you know six to nine different options for how you can take a, a math 101 class. I just think it's interesting how institutions are going to navigate it, and I imagine it's not going to be um, uh, it's not going to be consistent. And I don't think it's going to be consistent between even departments at same institutions. For example, uh, uh, you know different different schools are going to have or different faculties are going to have different policies of how they approach it depending on the discipline.
1: Yeah. And Chris, like, I I think you've brought up a good point, like with uh, just allowing more flexibility in the offering of the courses. And to give you some perspective, like when I thought of hybrid, it was basically, you know, I've created this content. Now I can give some of that content for the students to go and prepare for the actual lecture that's going to be face to face. But, you know, the more that after you brought this point up, like I, I look at when I teach in uh, the Faculty of Continuing Education. So there's one course that I actually actually there's two courses that I've taught both in person and online. And we offer, you know, uh, a variety of these courses. And, and maybe that's more because it's professional development and we have to cater towards People's schedules, especially as they're working towards their, um, you know, designations or credentials. But we have uh, staggered times for when the courses are offered. Um, You know, again, we're being a little bit more accommodating towards the, the person's schedule. So there'll be a class in the evening or on the weekends, or maybe it'll be online if you don't have that flexibility with your personal and work-life balance. And, you know, the more that you, after you mentioned this, and I didn't think about it, but I'm I'm thinking like one of the courses that I've taught at Mount Royal this past semester, uh, Creativity in the Workplace, I think it could actually be offered completely online, even going forward. And maybe there should be like an option where students can go and take it on their own, Uh, You know, you have this cohort of students uh, that you get put into groups with and then do it uh, at your own pace. Everything's structured. But then some people will want to do it in person. And, you know, again, we can accommodate that as well. And just I think broadening that, um, you know, accessibility and that offering to the students is probably maybe a good thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, to Eric's point about the adequation of schools, right? We were chatting about this offline. Chris, you talk a lot about the cohorts and you think about how it's such a great idea. I think the reason we don't have strict cohorts for most programs these days is because students are seeking greater accommodation. People work uh, and have whole part-time jobs frequently. I don't think that's a new phenomenon. I think students have to travel very far. I know I have friends who live in the deep south of Calgary that take two hours to get to school every day on the train, right? Um, So I think a combination of these different factors are pushing us towards this new mismatch of different possibilities. And I'll be very interested to see how certain departments and certain faculties and disciplines might have particular trends in terms of how forward-thinking and progressive they might be, or how kind of, you know, layered they are with their traditional academic ways, shall I say. Um, Not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, I, I, I think there's going to be some of that and some discrepancies and even some tension between certain students who, you know, you know, my friend in this faculty has much more flexibility than I do. And in, in the short term, as this gets kind of figured out and then the stabilization and the balance, the equilibrium between all of these factors gets kind of sorted out um, and you know, the short lifespan of a student, is, you know, uh, four years. So I imagine it's going to take longer than that to, to, to normalize. Uh, and that's why I'd imagine there's going to be a little bit of that you know, quote unquote tension or controversy and things like that. But
0: yeah, I, I feel kind of like the old school person here. I mean, I, I think you're, I think there is a value and more flexibility, Chris. I think the only area where it becomes an issue, I, you know, especially if it's elective courses that aren't required, it, it shouldn't really matter. I think the problem becomes is it's very online teaching can be really good. It can it can be equivalent online courses. It can they can be done really well, but they do typically do not look like face-to-face courses if they're designed for online. You can create the same content, but the the production and sometimes maybe the outcomes may change as a result because of the the way projects are done. So I think the problem the tension becomes especially around required courses where you need, or a prerequisites in a, in a program where you need to take something and you have to move on to the next level. Uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but the University of Alberta's Master's of Library Information Studies, which I graduated from, I did the face-to-face program, but they have an online program where they mirror many of the courses. People cannot take, or at least they weren't able to take the online courses in the face-to-face program. And the reason was, is that they were designed very differently and some of the objectives were a little bit different. So it's it's difficult to assume that that person has the prerequisite knowledge or even has completed the same kinds of projects because the the program is different and I think you could take that down to a course level if you wanted to make a course the same and then but it's really online versus face-to-face that actually you could do but they would look a lot more like the emergency remote instruction we're doing now rather than a course designed specifically for online one of the Question: one of the discussions I had with a faculty member as part of a departmental project I'm working on very uh, rightly pointed out that anybody who took certain courses this year has a big asterisk beside it. Oh, you did it in that year. Like, it's totally different, experimental, right? So to carry forward that knowledge, does that have a trickle-down effect um, and a huge effect as people work through the program? So I think it it requires some thought. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but it requires some thought. I understand the need for flexibility and I think probably taking an online course in anything, even if it is a um, uh, um, an elective, probably should be a requirement in a lot of programs for graduation because online learning is a skill. So if the university is teaching accountability and people showing up, which I think they actually should, Then they should also teach people how to learn online in an asynchronous or hybrid environment where they're personally accountable and they're not handheld because that is also a skill and in many ways online asynchronous courses are more analogous to how the workplace works because if you don't do your work no one's going to chase you down you just get fired so i think it's actually a really good experience for people to take an online course and that itself would be a requirement
1: yeah but i guess obviously things have changed, right? Like for example, uh, when I did my MBA, I actually had uh, for my management information systems Mm -hmm. course, it was through online delivery, which it kind of makes sense. Now you have to go and do um, everything uh, technology-wise and use that technology. I think, let's say in a a business degree, one course that probably could be easily made into online delivery is business law. It's a mandatory course for the uh, the degree. I I don't think it's anything that uh, is super um, uh, onerous to go and uh, make it that way. But again, like you mentioned, Eric, um, obviously you have to adapt it. So like the one course that I've been teaching, like we have a full instructional design team that's even been working on this uh, through uh, content. The assignments are different. So if you do it in person, you'll have a presentation online. You don't have that presentation, right? And instead you have a discussion board where you can go and see what everybody else has posted. So, uh, you know, you still have the same learning objectives. It is, it is the assistance. same, Obviously, it, unless the,
0: the subsequent so, course that something is required for is, say, hugely presentation-based and then somebody goes into it, the people who took the face-to-face course have a massive advantage, right? So, I mean, I think, uh, and uh, and that and then, of the course, the stakes become higher, as you get into third and fourth year level courses. So I think, again, I think it can be possible. I just, all I'm saying is that I think it requires some thought because if somebody had a very different experience in online, I'm not saying that they don't understand the content or as well, or the course isn't as good, but the way they expressed those objectives may be different in so far that when they get into the next course, which may not have the option to be online or offline, uh, it may just be face-to-face, then they may be in a disadvantage. And then that, of course, the the next rational step is that, okay, well, then the next course should have an option. And then, then that's how you get online programs, right? So I, I'm just saying that I have seen this happen before where people are like, Oh, I took the online course. Like I've never done a, I never had to do a, a, this kind of presentation before. And now we're in a group and it's a, it's a huge uh, hurdle, right? So I, I just think that, um, it's not that faculty are unwilling to, but at a curriculum level, when there's a, you know, a department chair or an associate dean is looking at the curriculum and a revision, they kind of have to think through, and this is where I, where I caution student associations when they say, well, why can't this just be done? And I'm thinking, well, they're right. It's a great proposal. It's a great suggestion. And especially if someone is commuting and, you know, Mount is a good example because we're largely a commuter campus. Time is, does really matter. Time on transit is not a good use of time unless you're able to do your homework or something, but they may not understand the trickle down. And as someone who is a faculty member and I have served on curriculum committees, I sit on GFC at the university, I kind of know the thought that's put into those, those curriculum changes and where that becomes a problem and how you get sessionals on board to teach certain courses and how you coordinate everybody and how certain projects carry over. It requires a massive coordination effort. So I think it can be done, but I just, I think it'll take a while before they get that mix or they figure out which courses that works best for.
2: Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly where I'm getting at right Eric. I think students have this expectation right now, um, at least in my circles, where that's kind of this prevailing, it's going to be a massive shift and we're going to have Mm -hmm. this kind of September 1st next year. This is what it's going to look like. And I don't think that's the case and I don't think that's realistic. And I think there needs to be a balance and how that looks, whether as, as you mentioned that specific to programs, and curriculum design um, and it will vary evidently what that looks like particular how many options you're allowed um, online perhaps you're allowed x amount of credits for your concentration yeah. or major course right things like that um i think that's where we're headed um but it, it'll be interesting to see how the cards kind of fall and how different institutions kind of handle it because i think as soon as one institution very easily you know one of the one of the big names somewhere around the world is going to make a commitment towards one direction. And a lot of the students are going to see this in the New York times or Washington post, BBC news, something like that. And are going to have a fit when their institution doesn't match. So I just think it's an an interesting, you know, kind of discussion and proposal of where things are headed, what this actually looks like. I think Chris makes an excellent forecast of this is going to happen. The how there's a big question mark yet, uh, in my mind uh, last point on that too eric you mentioned kind of the interpersonal um tension between students who have different programs i think that's true for in person classes as well you have different professors who do different things one professor wants a presentation another mm-hmm. wants a uh, you know a, a test or a project instead i think that's only going to be exacerbated further by these permutations and combinations of various online programs that, again different faculties and departments different institutions and i think the industry as a whole is going to have to kind of very carefully navigate both appeasing following the trend public opinion port of public domain etc cetera, etc cetera. traditional academic learning and pedagogy doing the right thing on that front and then kind of just striking the right balance for what makes sense between a time delivery, curriculum development effort, understanding, fairness to the staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we can go on and on and on. We've gone long enough for this. Perhaps we should move on to the next topic, but I think that was a, a great debate um, and discussion about you know all the different ways that this is actually gonna play out. Um, and I think that's the, to me, that's, that's the big kicker. It, yeah, Chris, 100%, you're right, this is gonna happen. How is it gonna happen? that that's the interesting part so
1: yeah well on that note let's move on to number 8 so technology exposing socio economic fragility and so from this one thing that i noticed is um and uh, i think this is where student access to technology and being able to whether it's um you know an economic thing where they can't afford it or Actually, using the technology, but the students who actually use and have access to the technology will actually have higher performance. And to give you an example, one thing that I noticed is uh, the students, right across all the sections that I've uh, taught this past semester, the ones who used their webcams and turned them on, they actually did way better. And I think it's almost uh, you can use uh, the analogy. I mean, even myself, like I, I would always sit at the front of the classroom. And the reason why I sat at the front, I tried sitting in the back, and with my friends I would goof off or what have you. When you're at the front, you're you have to be on into the actual lecture or into the the class um, um, you know material. So this is where again, like you're just more aware of uh, what's taking place. And uh, for that matter, again, the people who used uh, their webcams, they would also be a little bit more uh, willing to go and actually speak into the microphone as well. Uh, Beyond that, uh, I think, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about offline is uh, even just access to internet speed and, uh, you know, the, so the greater the speed that you'll have, the better your chances are going to be in terms of uh, performing well in school.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand bandwidth with uh, webcam. I mean, if you want to use your webcam, but your internet sucks and <laughs> crashes your internet at home, <laughs> you can't really get very far. Uh, so internet, uh, home internet in general will be critical. I wonder uh, if this hybrid model continues, if there'll be such a demand for better home internet that you won't see more neighborhoods have uh, last mile fiber connected to the major. I mean, last mile fiber, for those who don't know, or if you're creating a fiber network, a lot of neighborhoods actually have fiber, but the last mile is kind of, you know, the connection to the individual households and stuff, which is Expensive historically, because not everybody needs a fiber or a vir- or you know a half half a gigabyte per second internet download upload. upload. But if you're working and learning online and you're doing lots of vid- live video conferencing then that is absolutely necessary. So I wonder if there'll be a huge demand for it. It could be a good thing because last uh, fiber plans and fiber internet is historically very expensive, but I'm already seeing it become more expensive or less expensive and the prices come down. So it, that, that's that been um, a concern about access to information generally for almost 20 years, last mile fiber. And how are we going to incentivize the big companies, the internet service providers to to do that or maybe municipal uh, or uh, government so like Olds in Alberta for instance owns their own internet inst- uh, infrastructure and they have is it Olds Net I don't I don't remember what the yeah forget company what it's called but-,
1: but um yeah I mean Olds College uh, or that Olds the, the town itself actually has the fastest internet in the country
0: yeah yeah because it was a bit and, and they were kind of a leader in that so you may see more of what Olds did in places like Calgary and Edmonton and Red Deer because people need that to do their work and learn online. It'll be absolutely, it'll actually be essential.
1: But you know, for webcams, as much as everybody thinks like this, uh, you need like super high bandwidth. uh, You know, I've tried it before with uh, students. Uh, If you're in a metropolitan area for the most part, you know, having, I think it's almost like a misnomer. Uh, People think that if everybody's webcams are on that you're gonna have this lag or something, but it, it isn't the case
0: no it doesn't matter for your course or the class because those people will be all over town it becomes a problem when the condo building you live in every single, like half of the people in that building in your neighborhood are on video conference right so because there's like one pipe per community is typically how it's set up so i think that's kind of like the minimum standard has changed
2: the other thing that i thought about when i saw this topic cross is a lot of my friends i know would- go to campus and use the computer labs right they would dial into the technology that's available to them on campus and the infrastructure that's there as we continue in an online environment or even as we talk about potential hybrid learning and all that discussion we had prior um i think the highlight of the discrepancies between socioeconomic background and um, financial ability and things like that were going to be exacerbated and um, highlighted further It raises questions about how student loans and funding and kind of even the ed tech industry itself, I mean, particularly with how we see textbooks being rented, whether or not certain things like laptops kind of have a rent program or a rent-to-own program or certain payment plans being installed more so um, even any of the big box retailers to accommodate for students. Um, Show your student ID, you get a discount for, you know, a certain payment plan of 2%, whatever, right? Uh, I think there are possibilities And potential kind of uh, changes on a lot of fronts and opportunities for different businesses to kind of take that up.
0: Yeah, I think you're going to see more of the bundling, Chris, and the hardware and the um, kind of pay to own the financing. It's funny, Apple was actually, I I remember in 2001, 2002, um, you could finance Apple for education, whether you're an educator, working or a student for very, very low rate. Um, they were one of the first companies to do that on mass through their product line. And it was kind of ridiculed at the time and it kind of went away. And I wonder if that'll come back.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, uh, if they could, yeah, like, I mean, that would be ideal. Uh, even if you look at a lot of these, um, let's say for example, Apple with their newest iPhones, they're like, there are sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars 1700 And I don't know how many people have that just lying around. And so basically the telecommunication providers are subsidizing that. So you're essentially uh, either, you know, you're paying higher for your actual uh, cellular plan, or you're actually, you know, financing that cell phone. So you're paying it over the, the course of that period. But if a company like Apple, if they actually w- could go and do it, Uh, Maybe it is something that you don't even have to own. And it's just, you know, once you're after a year or two years, you just bring it back to them. They give you the next uh, latest and greatest. And I mean, we see this happening in vehicles already where, uh, let's say Volkswagen, uh, what they're doing is uh, you basically, instead of leasing, it's typically, it's basically like a lease, but you go and get your vehicle. Let's say you need a sedan. Uh, You pay X amount of dollars per month, but now all of a sudden your needs have changed and now you go up to the next plan and get an SUV. And so this is how they were able to confront uh, the issue with their, um, uh, you know, not being able to um, uh, actually deal with the environmental side of things um, and uh, just try to win back some of their business.
2: Mm -hmm. I wonder also whether or not schools are going to shift away from investing into infrastructure. And like uh, desktop computers, physical desktop tower computers, and instead shift towards providing laptops subsidized at a, you know, rented program, insurance fee, you break it, you pay for it. Otherwise you pay the whatever, $350, $400 a year as part of your additional tuition. And that's your laptop to use for school and you return it after the semester's over. Yeah. Um, I can and see things I... like that happening as well.
1: Yeah. And I think Chris, like uh, I believe SAIT, certain programs, they actually do have that where part of their uh, tuition fees, you go and get a a piece of equipment from them. And then at the end of the, whenever the program is done, you just return it back uh, subject to a deposit.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. They won't save any money on infrastructure costs though, because um, having worked in an ed tech department that's managed part of that, something like that, the costs of managing the computers, like the desk side support required, just goes through the roof. So I wonder what the trade-off would look like. So we get rid of, let's say the computer labs or some of them on campus and the cost of buying and maintaining those labs to hire uh, more people to do say tickets for uh, computer troubleshooting right because there's kind of an expectation that if the university is providing the equipment that they also support it and that is a huge human capital cost not to suggest that that's a necessarily a bad thing but I wonder if that would end up being more expensive
2: oh yeah I don't think there's going to be cost savings oh I think it's uh, just a student need and demand It's potentially going to be met i don't think it's particularly unreasonable for institutions to look at that um at least explore it as chris mentioned i think a lot of places are kind of doing that already of like say with particular software needs and equipment but uh, i just think that that's a potential market that might be opened at particular universities where there's enough of a demand um there's enough funding right free cash flow things like that so
0: yeah, my only my only concern and I feel like the debbie downer today, but my only concern would be that there is a demand for that so they implement it. They realize or they try to implement it, they realize they can't pay for it and they do what some California schools have done, which is what they've essentially outsourced their IT department. To some third world country and then that's who the students deal with and then they have like terrible privacy practices and they have like data leaks all the time I don't know what university that was maybe it was in San Francisco there is a university that did exactly this (laughs) I'm just wondering if they'll if they'll to pay for it they'll also lower the bar for security and stuff like that I would I would hope that if they give out computers that they would have like a minimum standard uh for what uh you know antivirus or whatever is running on those things The end. I guess we'll move on to number seven. Did you want to take that one, Chris?
2: Yeah, this is, uh, I think, a a quick and easy one. (laughs) Unlike our past few. So we have kind of the idea of big brother and integrity. And what does that look like? So for me, this looks like increased scrutiny over academic integrity. A lot of chatter and talk already across academic circles and student groups about implementing the... um, remote proctoring, uh, and other kind of services and softwares to help manage issues with academic integrity. I think there's going to be additional policy changes as well, including the further implementation and exploration of this, especially when we talk about having an online or hybrid environment going forward. Uh, I think there's going to be increased scrutiny over that. And the only reason I talk about this integrity part, or this big brother part, pardon me, uh, is going to lead into Eric's next point. So, talking about data privacy and ensuring people are how we're ma- ma- managing and monitoring people, particularly if we get things like university-owned laptops being issued to students now. Where yeah. does that um, you know user privacy look like? Are you going to scan somebody's entire Facebook, social media, email, and go through? You know, have background programs to run through this? Probably not. But you know, this is the The uh, student big brother concern, right, where I hear this from people like, you know, soon this is where all this is happening. I mean, even we're recording this on Zoom, as a lot of people know, regular listeners might know. Uh, I've heard a rumor. I don't know if this is true or not. Complete hearsay. But students have said that apparently the Zoom that we use through our institution is actually all of them, regardless of whether or not we're recording, are stored on a cloud somewhere and available for institution review. Uh, Probably true. So, I mean, even at that level, I think there's concerns potentially about privacy. That's in the fine print that nobody ever reads, an issue for people kind of in general. But I think um going to be an increased trend and innovation in academic integrity softwares, programs, policies, technologies for tech, specifically how it's going to impact students in policy, in class structure, curriculum design. Um, and data privacy concerns, which I don't want to steal it, but Eric, what's number six?
0: Uh, privacy will become will will kind of uh, boil to the surface for universities. So universities will become somewhat more liable um, for student privacy and data privacy. Uh, so these things will be at the forefront. And you kind of brought this up with the first one. So there's kind of two aspects to the technology and the big brother. And you stated the first one, there's going to be some issues around academic integrity, particularly in the online learning environment. And that I think will involve um, how they handle um, academic dishonesty, because I think there is some evidence that there has been, well, at least there has been more uh, accusations of cheating, at least handed out, whether they're all valid or not is another question, but how they handle those cases uh, in an online environment, what proof is required, uh, all of that will change. Related to that, the prevention is where the privacy thing comes in. So the concern really revolves around the the digital platforms that'll be used for student work. So you mentioned Zoom. Uh, I think the, the problem is that what will happen and this is also related to point ten about edtech unicorns. Edtech companies will spring up; they'll become worth a billion dollars. They'll provide some sort of service, so perhaps uh, auto essay grading. They'll do all of these things for that have a pedagogical outcome, but their underlying business will be some sort of data collection. That's where they'll make the real money. It's it's a new ball game. For universities uh, to be entangled with this, and unfortunately, uh, universities that have gotten into uh, data privacy breaches in the past haven't fared so well. And we've already seen this with all sorts of social media. I think it was Instagram well, not that long ago. Uh, it was reported that they could actually it was looking at people's facial or people's reactions to certain information. So maybe uh, Instagram has more access to the the our keystrokes and cameras and stuff as we go forward i mean i saw the when apple rolled out their new version of ios i mean linkedin had to be updated the app because i think it was reading the phone's clipboard like every three seconds to see what people had saved what they were cutting and pasting so these are the background processes these are the little things that seem insignificant but with artificial intelligence and cloud computing and just supercomputing in general this data can be crunched to become incredibly powerful. And I think the concern is that students will have essentially shadow profiles built on them, but they won't be opting in and they won't, you don't have to use Facebook. You don't have to use Instagram. I don't use a bunch of these tools. It's fine. But if you're at an institution where you have to use it and you're mandated to use it, then the university is a little bit more liable. Uh, for any data that is siphoned. So if you're on a computer, you have to install some uh, remote proctoring software. Well, some of these softwares have been shown to take all your keystrokes and inevitably all your passwords and stuff with it when you go to log into services, they run in the background regardless if you're taking a test or not. That's a big problem. And if the university says you have to use spyware or it turns out to be spyware, uh, they could be sued. This could be a real problem too at a time where universities are not as uh, fiscally well off as they used to be in our province. In Alberta, there's a ton of budget cuts, but universities, whether they're facing budget cuts or facing pressure from uh, our other uh, competitors, which we'll talk about later in our list, I think this could be a big problem. I don't think that universities can afford the liability if they have to settle, to be quite honest.
1: And you bring up a good point, Eric, even um, with Apple, the latest OS that they've rolled out for the iPhone, you can actually go and see whether the apps, so let's say LinkedIn or Instagram, if they're using um, or accessing your camera your voice. And so this is probably where maybe maybe some of you have noticed this. Maybe you're having a phone conversation with somebody and then, you know, you haven't had any text uh, kind of conversation like on WhatsApp, but all of a sudden all your Instagram ads are related to whatever you just chatted about. And so now it's becoming a little bit more transparent and to that, uh, you know, front uh, Facebook even took out full page ads uh, you know, against Apple, so it was kind of interesting.
0: A ludicrous counter argument on Facebook's part. I want to point out, just a r- outrageous like, they're, "Apple's hurting small businesses by telling people who's stealing your data." I mean, it was just a outrageous. I can't believe that they even posted that. It was an embarrassment, to be honest. But I, it, it'll be. But it, it, this, the, this is a a lot of universities are public institutions, right? So we expect. I, I guess the difference to me is that we expect that from. A criminal corporation. I mean, you know, you get what you pay for buyer beware. And we have a market economy. I think that's a good thing. People should be aware it's their responsibility to be aware of which apps are crap or not. And Apple does a really good job to help people provide to decide, but I don't know what it's going to look like when things are mandated by a large publicly funded institution that doesn't have a lot of fiscal leeway or can settle lawsuits. And they've now people don't know what they're doing, who've adopted a software that it turns out to have some major privacy leak. Like, I don't know, like, I I have no idea. It's, it's, it would be the equivalent if, uh, you know, you manage, if you had a huge PeopleSoft data leak at a company where you have all their social security numbers in the States and all their stuff. I mean, the company is now liable, right? Or like when Equifax, well, they got away with it. So that's a bad example, but you know where where they hold a lot of really critical personal information. I mean, a university is one of them, right? I mean, they have all sorts of stuff on you to verify who you are as an as a student, and rightfully so. But it's oh, it makes me it makes me worried because I feel that as good as I, I like universities a lot, obviously, but I don't know that it's going to be so clear cut what to look out for especially since some of these ed tech tools are going to be so new like we all know social media kind of spies on people like it's kind of a scam i don't know that that's going to be self-evident if some ed tech startup starts doing it you're not going to know until years later right Mm
2: -hmm. in in short eric i have quick answer for that four words student advocacy groups uproar
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, they will have an uproar, but it'll be an interesting... I mean, imagine the debate, right? So this is this is a situation I see. We talked earlier about flexibility in courses, which I am on board with, if it can be done well. That's a big if, caveat. But like, do you want to take online? Do you want to take hybrid? Do you want to take face-to-face as a prereq to move through your program? Whatever. If they can make it work, they should totally go for it. So there's advocacy for greater flexibility um, different kinds of assignments, um, different kinds of learning styles, accommodating different people. Well, if the university says, yeah, we, really, we want to accommodate this, but that means that we need to now invest in some technological software that turns out to have leaked people data, it's going to be a really interesting debate about One group advocated for something, the university implemented it, and it turned out to be a disaster. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily how it'll play out, but I think that some of the pressure to adopt ed-tech tools that could potentially be predatory or have a data data siphoning aspect may be implemented as a result of advocacy in the first place.
2: Well, I'll play the Debbie Downer devil's advocate now, Eric. I think that students do that all the time especially because I mentioned that the academic career isn't very long. It's Mm -hmm. four years and the student governance career is shorter than that significantly. Maybe two years of a student's life will be spent in kind of that sphere of student politics and kind of really being dialed in. Uh, At that point, I don't think you can please students. We're a tough crowd. We're a diverse crowd.
0: Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have any library sessions if they had their way. I'm sure.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just the, Pleasing a student is an impossible task. The placating of students to a certain extent and meeting student needs is a, is a careful balance that needs to be met. And we've alluded to that before. But I, I'm using this as a segue into our next topic. But whether or not we can placate students. Um, what's, what's number five, Eric?
0: Well, I don't want to say the title of it because I don't want to get in trouble. But we, we, we kind of called it, uh, I'll just say uh, the snowflake problem. I don't think that's a totally unfair characterization. It certainly doesn't uh, characterize everybody. It's a bit of a joke. Um, Not everybody is a snowflake. It tends to be a, a moniker that's put on young people. I've had it put on myself until I started to get into my 30s, so I feel somewhat justified to be able to use it now, having been on the other end of it. But... Yeah.
2: And I guess for the, for the record, if like anybody from Mount Royal is listening, I came up (laughs) and I go to UFC, So yeah, I mean, it didn't come at me, but (laughs) no, I mean, it's, it's
0: it's a, it's, it's a balance of what people want and feeling that if they don't get it, that, um, there's, there, there, there's some sort of injustice that's been done. And certainly that sometimes is the case, but it's not always the case, but what, in the context that we're talking about is the pass fail debate. So in the emergency remote instruction paradigm moving into the pandemic uh our institution as well as many others offered uh either the option or went ahead with a pass fail system so i believe at our institution at in montreal it was an, and please chris correct me if i'm wrong it was optional they could choose a covid pass covid fail or covid pass if they had done enough just because You know, they were kind of thrown into this at the last minute. It was a disaster.
1: Yeah, it was the same at the University of Calgary. So if your grade was too low, you basically got credit for the course and it wouldn't be taken into account for the GPA calculation.
0: Right. And it was just kind of like you you got a pass, but it didn't raise or lower your GPA. And I think U of A did all pass-fail for that. It was mandatory. Which was really... Problematic in some students' eyes, and I actually agree with students strongly with this. So don't—I'm not always uh, playing devil's advocate against the student association, but um, because it, for it, for people who did really well in the course and then just got a pass, uh, that's a problem if you're applying to medical school or something that's very competitive, which is which is understandable. So that the pass-fail debate will continue. Now, moving past. The emergency remote instruction moving into back to normal, whatever that looks like. There's been some debate about well, should we get rid of letter grades altogether and should we move to pass fail? Now, there's been some, I'm still going through some of the research on this. Uh, I believe in epistemological humility, meaning that I know what I know and I know what I don't know and I don't know everything uh, research-wise that's been done when a pass-fail system over a grading system has been implemented. Um, I try to have that humility for context because I find that people who don't know what they don't know think they know everything uh, and then that becomes a real problem. But in this particular case, pass-fail, my hunch and if I come up with a counter evidence that changes my view, I will correct it on a future podcast episode. If I don't assume that it wasn't a satisfactory evidence for me, I think pass fail system is a terrible idea personally. And the reason being is that yes, it can take some of the pressure off and it, it removes the, uh, if you think about the human brain as a computer and it's running low on memory, because there's this side process running in the background, like a really terrible software, especially ones that siphon your data off, where you're always thinking and doing your grade calculation in the background, and that becomes an obsession. That is really bad, so a pass-fail system removes that anxiety. But I think it lowers everything to the lowest common denominator. There is no motivation, and I would never have strived to get A pluses on papers and work my ass off to write really, really well. I wrote over 1,500 pages worth of material in my undergrad for papers, and I never would have had the motivation had I known that C plus A whatever would would just get me a pass. A pass-fail system might work if the bar for a pass is super high, which means that a lot of people are going to fail, and I suspect that... That is not what people who are advocating for the pass-fail system are suggesting. So in short, I really don't like the idea. I think it's probably well-intentioned, but I think it takes away the motivation of people who are trying to improve. And regardless of the um, arbitrary nature of grades, I think they do mean something. I had a discussion with with someone Uh, who kind of debated me on, well, how do we know that we're grading or even testing for what we want to test for? Like, how can we know anything? The ultimate skeptic is not a very helpful person. Ultimately, if you write a terrible paper and there's a rubric, even if there's a margin of error in the grading, it's probably still a terrible paper. So you could argue that maybe this C plus should have been a B minus, but ultimately there's a big difference between an A plus paper on a rubric and a C plus paper. Uh, it's clear as day. Maybe it's difficult to quantify and I don't want to ramble on and on about this, but there is a difference in the quality. That's why some books are bestsellers and most are not. Um, there is a difference in the quality of work. Uh, especially around writing, which is very difficult to grade. And I just really concerns me that a pass-fail system basically turns a bunch of people who are really motivated into unmotivated people. And it motivates people who are already unmotivated to continue on. I think it's a race to the bottom.
2: And that's not going to help with graduate programs and professional programs like medicine and law. I I don't know if you want a doctor. That just passed <laughs> um well you wouldn't as, know as the as the you wouldn't well, know i mean and that's the bar right to to um whether or not someone gets into medical school performs surgery and learns these things I, i'm just saying like there's a lot of trickle down factors that affect this it, um beyond what we just discussed yeah
0: it's a response partly um, to the COVID-19 crisis. So there's a temporary solution implemented for the pass-fail system. It's a very different argument than a permanent system. I think it's also a response to a long-time problem, which is great inflation. And this is also related to the problem of academic inflation. So the median, in, at least in the United States, there's a great website called gradeinflation.com. Um, if the median grade in the Vietnam area for or Vietnam era for college uh, courses was a C, so by median, not the average, but the most common grade handed out, that's an A now. And if you look at the graphs it's basically A and C has reversed. That doesn't mean the average is an A, but there's more A's being handed out. Now, some people have made the case that that's because people are smarter now. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence for that or even how you would go to prove that. That's quite the claim. But the fact that more A's are being handed out is also a reflection of more people needing to get into grad school just because more people go to university for an undergrad. So undergrads are less exclusive. I'm not saying that's That's a bad thing, but a byproduct of less exclusivity or um, um, more supply in the marketplace means that it's less rare and it becomes less valuable. So then there's more of a pressure for people to go to graduate school, which is kind of the new undergrad. So if there's more pressure and therefore advocacy to get into graduate school, there's more pressure for faculty who if they're trying to get tenure and a part of that getting tenure is student evaluations are going to hand out better grades. So there's kind of a perverse incentive and this has been going on for a really long time. The COVID thing has just exposed uh, a current crisis, but this idea of pass fail is not new. In fact, this idea has come off the shelf. You know, it comes in cycles every so often. I feel like I'm, I, I can't really make any more cases against why I think it's bad, but I think it's, it's been shown over and over again uh, as a way to mitigate yet another problem that has cropped up. And I think we're kind of afraid to tell people uh, that their work isn't very good or could be a lot better because perhaps there's a lot more repercussion for that these days. And I just don't know that that's a good solution. At the same time, I think another reason is that maybe we hand out more A's and we're more likely to want to go to a pass-fail system because we tend to value the the grades piece So much more than everything else than when people apply to graduate school. When I went to graduate school, there was like, there was a big essay. There was a career prospects paper. There was an interview. There was a bunch of things that I had to do. And then grades were a part of it. Perhaps because there's more people going to grad school, it's too difficult to do all those interviews. So then they just look at grades and then that's kind of has a a compounding effect. I'll stop talking about it it just really bothers me
1: (laughs) you know the only thing that i think from a pass fail uh, i mean from an instructor standpoint i i think it it would make it a lot easier if it's just pass fail for marking and uh, i think it would also from a student perspective maybe give them a chance to to take more of a risk but uh, other than that i mean i i don't I don't know. I mean, I look at like even when I did my graduate uh, like degree, nobody's ever asked me for what my GPA as uh, was. And uh, the only time that it's ever come up is uh, if I'm looking to go and apply for more graduate work. <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah. you know, so I, I don't know how valuable, I mean, even one thing that um, we chatted about this offline, but, you know, instead of worrying about grades, you should just worry about what you learn
0: well we exactly and i agree with that 100 percent. but it does go in conflict you're right with if you need to get into grad school if you want to be a clinical psychologist you need to have a, at least a master's and perhaps a doctorate depending on the province or state that you live in there is a way around this though that has nothing to do with the pass fail so i took a science course once um, where the i don't know what the equation is but the professor used what's called the carrot rule meaning that if you demonstrated huge improvement from one exam to another the better exams were weighted that way because if you do really crappy on an on a higher stakes assignment and now the best you can get in the class is 75 no matter how well you do that is also uh, in the grade, you know, the, the letter grade system is a disincentive to work hard and do anything but scrape by. So I do think that there is perhaps an argument to be made for weighting improvement, because if someone does really, really well after they do really, really bad, clearly, they've learned a lot. How you implement that is, uh, is a good question. But I think there's ways around the risk taking without having to eliminate grades altogether.
2: So, number four, uh, increased market diversity for edtech tools. And I, specifically, I wanted to talk about edtech tools penetrating in the K to 12 areas, and then as well in a lot of the private tutoring. And I mean private tutoring in two ways. I mean that in a professional consultation for uh, standardized test prep, uh, professional program prep, professional development, things like that. And then I also mean in the private kind of at home uncertified setting as well, prominence of tech tools. What does this kind of look like? I think it has a few different variations. I, I want to start with the you know the private tutoring. We talk about how the prevalence of Skype and Zoom and um, tools like Top Hat and Critic that we've had d- discussions about on this podcast before, what those look like when they start getting involved in a private tutoring. Um, perspective having digital remote private tutoring sessions in a k-12 in a university doesn't matter it's sometimes it's hard to find a good tutor that's going to know that the subject material can meet your schedule uh, even meet your price point in a lot of circumstances i'd argue and i think that having a digital environment and the enablement and normalization of this digital learning environment is going to promote that further. And I think that's going to change a lot of the landscapes of how that is necessarily delivered. And it can't be done asynchronously. I think it can be done um, en masse from different places like Udemy. We've already seen increases of that, costrera etc. You don't need to have a private KGEG Craigslist tutor anymore or uh, even... Uh, you know, the like classifieds posting in the students' union hall, right? It's not really where we see those anymore, rip a tap, call this number. I mean, it happens, but I think we're, there's going to be more, uh, kind of the less and less of that. This might be writing on the wall for those type of businesses and th- that business model in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a significant shift that we're going to see. I think in contrast, that's going to also emerge more so for a lot of these uh kind of in-person graduate program plus standardized tests, tutoring sessions where it's we already have tons of books and seminars and webinars online that you purchase to go through this. I think there's going to be a greater increase in Udemy, Coursera, other mediums to get that content out to people. Um, kind of as Chris said earlier, like once as an instructor, the GMAT, the LSAT, the MCAT, they're not really changing significantly um year to year. So once you've prepared your materials, the number of students you can reach and the price point that you can actually penetrate the market at is significantly improved as opposed to um an in-person center that is infrastructure and office staff and the secretary and all this other stuff, right? I think that's going to be a huge shift as those Kind of programs have to shift online and a lot of those centers have to kind of go online um and th- this is true for even like things like sylvan learning and kumon and whatever else for k-12 to um that's going to be kind of in the next short term here If they're doing it online anyways there's not a lot of incentive to stick with these higher price point models and i think that that's going to be an issue for them it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt um, but I also think it's going to be significant in terms of how people are going to get their content, how they're going to learn. And I think that's just part of that ongoing normalization and shift of digital learning, online learning. It's not a big thing anymore. It's not so out there. You want to study for your MCAT? You don't need to go in person and pay a thousand dollars. You can get it through Coursera, or Udemy, or whatever. What have you? I think that's going to be a major shift in terms of K to twelve. I think there's. Going to be kind of more of an investment into online learning tools. I think what this is kind of really exposed, regardless of budgetary constraints, uh, at, at, I, I you know talking to a lot of parents, the kind of concern at the level of technology that we have uh, given to K 12 students. We see two or three year olds playing with iPads, and yet we don't have basic computer literacy. I think is a common thing. We were talking about this offline as well. So when we have that kind of continuing trend and we talk about new and innovative ways of learning, we talk about changing curriculum developments and I don't want to get into the politics and economics of how this kind of flows out and works, right? But ultimately, I think there is going to be an opportunity for tools like Top Hat, Critic, new players to kind of really penetrate the market, as did smart boards not too long ago. Um, and others as well so i think that's where that market diversity is really happening i think there's going to be a large boom lots of opportunity um maybe not necessarily even in canada but in a lot of other markets where there is high demand um even in private schools i think this is probably a good starting point where they do have additional capital to spend on tools like that i think there's going to be increased demand and increased experimentation there's going to be a, a shift and this is how kind of modern learning is going to play out in the k-12 all the way up
0: do you, uh, I? I have a question about that, Chris. Do you? So I, what, I'm going to I'm going to date myself. So when I was in university, none of those online learning programs existed. But but there was Cole's notes, so you could get these summaries of knowledge oh, yeah. as ancillary. Chris is smiling. I see a smile. No one else can see it. <laughs> maybe we'll put this on YouTube. Uh, it would be funny. Uh, and that was kind of ancillary tutoring, like knowledge that you could get. Uh, is we so today let's say you're taking a course in statistics and you know maybe technically you have the prereqs but you're really not following along you could go to Khan Academy which is free by the way and is excellent or you could go to Udemy or something on YouTube and you could learn that that's kind of like your asynchronous uh Coles Notes digital tutor does it kind of fill that gap
2: yeah I I think so like I I think there's a continuing emergence of thought we have tons of platforms. It's not just close notes anymore. We have Sparknotes as well. Complete ripoff, yeah. right? A <laughs> um, like great saver is one that comes to mind. Uh, there's Chegg. Um, there's Course Hero. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Wow, Course Hero is, a, yeah. is another thing. That's that's like under lawsuits constantly now. That's a little bit
2: different. Yeah. Point is, there's is a, a lot of different these platforms and ed tech websites and startups that are trying to do these things. I mean, even good old Yahoo Answers Quora, Reddit, those are used often, right? Mm-hmm. I think that really what we're looking at is not just an amalgamation and expansion of that and the, the, the free domains, but looking at how content creators get this out to people. I think there's an increase of spotlight on how to leverage content, how even in the K-12 system, there's going to be leveraging of support for these programs. Um, I mean, realistically, what what I can see, and I'm just spitballing here, I've, I've worked with the public school system in the past uh, as a K-12 student consulting with different uh, levels at the board and whatnot. I don't know if this is possible. I think it's, it, it yeah, it would be a good thing. I'll, I'll say it that way. I don't gonna I'll edit this. I don't think it's feasible, but I think it would be beneficial for students. So ultimately, mm-hmm. I think it's very easy for someone to, instead of increasing and adding a new course, in a high school, particularly in a high school environment. I think this is very true. We have this math 15 concept that's typically thrown around now. So in Alberta, we have math 10, 20, 30 for 10, 11, 12, respectively. This math 15 is meant to be a bridge between 9 and 10, and then a little bit of introduction concepts to 11 You kind of re-solidify the 10 and go into 11. It's a bridge course between 9 and 10, really. Instead of offering course for that and tying down teachers and budgets that are already strapped, I don't think it would be unreasonable for um, government service to either do it in-house, contract Khan Academy, do a you know subcontract for a bunch of people to write a tax do an online course put together, and use that as a public service education platform, what have you, that's available and accessible to students only in that province. They have their you know, provincial login that they do normally for their Blackboard or D2L or whatever else. They get into this. And they get to watch this content. I think that's you know the democratization of... I, I love teachers. I, I don't think that you know we should be getting rid of teachers. But when push comes to stuff with budgets and things like that, we're talking about how to bridge student learning, all the different permutations and combinations. I think there's going to be a push towards this. I think there is going to mm-hmm. be more of this online learning, this kind of hybridization, these alternative solutions, increase of tools. Um, things to make teachers' marking easier, right? We talk about participation, things like that, Eric. Uh, you talked about that before. I think that's very true in a K-12 setting, holding students accountable for being present, paying attention. Very easy for something like Top Hat to be implemented and make up 10% of mm-hmm. student's mark, 20% of a student's mark. If you're paying attention, showing up to class, answering the questions, that are a of error. You, you get a certain amount of points, and you know you're actively trying to learn, right? It takes that edge off the tests, takes the edge off these other areas. And I think that's the evolution that we see happening in the K-12 area. I think it's very dynamic. I think there's a lot of opportunity. And it's particularly these younger folks, as they're getting super, you know, digital native people having iPads two or three years old, they're going to want to be able to pull out their iPhone in kindergarten and interact with the teacher through Top Hat. That's going to be appealing, right?
0: It is related to point number three. I don't know if you want to introduce that now, talking about digital content.
2: Yeah. So let's dive right into this. We have this third point we call textbooks. They're not dead yet. And so I think the, the biggest thing with this is we see that increased innovation, as I was talking about before with this tech material, but specifically with textbook companies, they've been doing this for a while. They've been trying to implement online learning solutions that are similar to your like Khan Academy and other things like that, where you have online resources and additional videos, you have quiz platforms. Um, I think like Wiley Plus is one that comes to mind. I think that's out of Pearson. Um, There's McGraw-Hill has one. Um, All the major publishing houses have this kind of different interactive new ways of learning that are typically not utilized or leveraged by institutions necessarily. Some classes are, a lot of them aren't but they are definitely included with the textbook purchase and i think as we shift towards an online environment i've seen that these Wiley Plus Pluses and the McGraw-Hill online platforms the line tops of the world are getting a ton more exposure and a ton more use so as we continue to look at how we get this hybrid learning environment this online learning environment the shift even to K to 12 how does edtech companies specifically textbook companies continue to innovate adapt and transition into an online delivery or online platform to transition some of their content and enhance the learning experience we have different things like interfacing um, and we talk about whether or not you actually need the paper you have digital um, digital books uh, again back to that earlier point of having young kids who are just, just so used to digital screens all the time do they even really want to hold book anymore i don't know the answer for that when little billy um grows up from kindergarten into you know uh making the decision between a kindle and a book um i know for myself and a lot of people in my generation that's still definitely i think we like the feel of a book but increasingly i don't think that's the case so i think there's a, a, a bridge to be crossed there
1: yeah, and I think with these test uh, textbook publishers, uh, just to remain v- relevant and also uh, just from a business model standpoint, they've had to go and innovate and develop some of those um, digital materials just to keep the, the textbook um, sales up, right? And especially, uh, I, I've noticed uh, even some of the textbooks that we've uh, dealt with, where we even um, uh, have the opportunity to talk with the authors. As soon as the textbook is published, it's already out of date. And to keep things relevant, what they've done is now they've bridged that gap by providing materials online and, uh, you know, keeping the current events, topics. And so that, that leads, um, you know, to uh, instructors and professors having access and just uh, being able to deliver higher quality content to their students
0: yeah it depends how you define a book, right? I mean I think I've seen textbooks we really just an online platform where you can read articles, you can put them in a reader view, you can have it read to you while it shows so there's like an uh, audio book plus follow along the text print format on a computer, which I thought was a great idea it has videos and and diagrams, and that's really like a interactive lecture and i think I think that is a is a great idea. It's interesting you mentioned uh, Chris the print. Did you know that um print overwhelmingly outsells ebooks?
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised.
0: But it, but it's interesting. There's a great it, it, this is a little bit different from the textbook because I think the textbook as a digital tool that has these interactions is actually a superior device to a to a print textbook that is static and goes out of date like Chris said. And I've seen this over and over again. Uh, psychology textbooks that talk about some current event thing that's happening, like, you know, a court case or something, criminal justice. And then it's like, wow, they don't even have the solution to the court case. They've been, they printed the book and then the court, I mean, it's like the current events are out of date immediately and they have to ship like an addendum to all the textbooks. It's crazy. But there's on the other side of things in terms of materials, um, print not only outsells digital, um, but you see kind of a, a comeback not for students, but young people in general for kind of more analog devices. So I think, you know, Moleskine was like a kind of a niche notebook product for a long time. I know there's, there's like 20 different competitors that make a very similar product. There's a great book about this that I just finished. That's a few years old now called Revenge of the Analog. My wife actually got it for me from the library. And it talks about the reasons why people would take print over digital um that doesn't mean digital's bad, but I think it kind of comes down to what we talked about with the um online or versus or hybrid delivery. If you try to replicate exactly a face-to-face course in online delivery, that's kind of where you run into trouble where if you like again, if you try to replicate uh, something that was designed for print exactly as digital with no value add, um I think that's that's where they run into trouble because it's clearly a compromise. So I think those things almost have to be rethought.
2: Oh, totally. And I think this is actually a good point. Um, You you raised something else that it reminded me of, Eric. Um, Not sponsored by Pearson, but the Pearson Revel app is fantastic.
0: It's really good. It's excellent.
2: I have had to use it this past semester. And just reading it, reading on your phone and how they have that interfaced, so much easier. And then integrating things like Wiley Plus directly into the app means that it's just fantastic how they've done it. And I think that really points to what you're saying, Eric, is how we approach this and how they continue to innovate and fine-tune. And and part of that market penetration, the last point as well, how we look at the um, issuance and deliverance of materials and information. That's going to be very important Mm -hmm. and ever-changing.
0: I think it'll be... I think it would be better for those digital platforms i've I have seen people i I don't use that personally, but i've I've seen videos of that app being used, like the Pearson app and the Wiley plus and platforms like that. I think where they could use some improvement, well, I don't know if there's any privacy issues. We'll find out as we already discussed. Uh, it might also be beneficial. I've heard for for some uh digital textbook platforms I don't know that this is the case for Pearson so this is this is not a criticism against their company but I know that if you've done highlights and notes um it can be difficult to export those out of the platform and of course then you lose access sometimes after a certain point even if you paid for it right it's kind of based on uh semester access yes yeah, the subscription service for some too. of them yeah exactly so a good I think digital tools are great uh, where you can have highlights and notes and, you know, virtual stickies and videos. And you can, oh, I liked this section of the video. I'll book, I'll chapter mark that. That's great. It would be nice to be able to, at least in some fundamental or rudimentary way to have people be able to export the effort they've put into that digital platform once they stop paying for it.
2: Which opens the door for, um, you know, it closes the door on resale for print text and that that hold used textbook market but it does open the door for piracy of notes and illegal copies of you know you can can screenshot those um highlights of your notes now out of the app or whatever you really want to take the time Mm -hmm. whether or not somebody will pay you for it i don't know and not can they're not condoning this by any means but i the the possibility is definitely there right so
0: yeah there's certainly there's certainly room Uh, where it could become problematic on both sides. And I can understand companies hesitancy to make it too easy. I meant more like if somebody did, uh, you know, took notes per chapter and like, if the notes are in like a side pane window, they should be able to like save them as a text file or a word or something like that. Uh, I think rather than having to manually cut and paste everything into a document, I think that's just, I mean, you could do that if you're really motivated to sell them. There's a way to get it out. Right. Um, I guess we can move on to number two. I'm struggling on how to introduce this. I I put both uh, our, my and your name beside it, Chris, uh, highlighting perhaps which is a bit of a wild card for 2021. But I, I think we may see more predatory degree programs, degrees. So I want to, uh, if I may, contextualize what I mean about this. So. For those who are not familiar with uh, the academic scholarly publishing process predatory is usually t- used in the context of predatory scholarly journals predatory journals and now predatory conferences so to understand how this works you kind of have to understand that the incentives behind a university is so the, the the predatory conferences and the publications have, histor- have affected historically the faculty members, sometimes graduate students the most. So you're a professor in a university, publicly funded. A large portion of your uh, salary comes from uh, taxpayers. Uh, as a result of you being paid by the university, you are expected to publish in your field and be a researcher, blah, blah, blah. So because you're expected to publish, uh, it's not like faculty members uh, publish papers and they get royalties for them from the publishing company. They're paid already by the university. So they essentially do, the, the publishing companies that have the journals, Elsevier is by far the worst defender. Um, They have a bunch of journals. They basically get uh, faculty work for nothing because the university is already paying them. Their whole business model is based on this. And then they resell those journals to the university libraries like ours. And of course, we have to buy those journals back from the people who at our institution already published in them to make access because they've usually given away their copyright A uh, journal. There are many predatory journals out there, and you can Google predatory journals, and you'll probably get an archived version of Beal's List, which used to be the kind of gold standard for all of the predatory journals. We now have predatory conferences. I get these emails all of the time. Eric, would you like to present at the... Uh first it's always the first annual or second annual because they can never get away with it too long. The first annual international conference for education, medicine, engineering and fine arts, which is an unbelievably broad topic. Uh if you pay us $1500, you can present at your conference uh and then you show up and there's nobody there. So this is what predatory has historically meant in academia. However, Like I said, it is targeted faculty members primarily or graduate students if they need to publish. Predatory degrees, I think we're going to see this as a result of pressure on universities to compete with other platforms, which we'll talk about later as our number one pick. But I think that universities are going to have more access to student data. I don't know if that'll come from uh, ed tech platforms where they have data sharing agreements. I don't know if that'll be because of... uh, institutional records that they share with each other. I have no idea, but they're going to start targeting students based on performance, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but then they'll say that they may start offering slots to uh, people early or start recruiting people based on their ability to pay up front. So that's a pretty, uh, uh, perhaps bold prediction, but there are some programs that I have heard about and I'm not going to mention any names or institutions but I have seen news articles I've heard from students who have been uh, solicited essentially uh, if you uh you know if you give us some money you know we can we can save you a slot in our program to kind of sideline this particularly for graduate programs the kind of rigorous analysis that would be done on a per student basis uh, to determine if they are a competitive applicant uh, to go to a graduate program.
2: Yeah, and I have an anecdote about this. I think we've shared it on the podcast before. Um, but one of the large, I'll say Canadian institutions, uh, very accredited. You know, we're talking about the, the, one, of the, the, one of the top institutions, big names. Um, the new program actually ended up soliciting myself. Contacted me through LinkedIn and about... 24 hours later, they were calling me and said, you know, fantastic. We want to offer you admission to our brand new graduate program. Let's talk about fees. <laughs> it's the one-year program for 50 grand, but it's, uh, you know, no big deal. We'll give you some scholarships. We'll cut that down. But, oh, by the way, there's, you know, resident fees as well. But, you know, we want to uh, make it good for you. We really want you as a student, so we're going to, see what we can do and here's some extra fees that we can cut out and this and that and basically here's the price tag you want admission put a deposit in we'll make it happen it's official process of under 48 hours rapid admission
0: and yeah it, it is a suspect uh
2: move ethically i think and again one, one of the major canadian institutions right so
1: well, and I think even Chris, you had uh, somebody from the United Kingdom that was a fairly decent one. Also, contact you, didn't you?
2: Yeah, that, that that was that was another one. That was, I mean, slightly different. I I was inquiring for some of their programs already, and then they had a. How about this one? You know, if, based on what we've, you know, I guess I had entered some information about my you know, standing and whatnot that they'd have more than. The one that approached me on LinkedIn, which really just looked at my LinkedIn profile. That was it. Um, Mm. uh, This one, you know, I had uploaded a CV. I had entered answered some questions about my overall GPA. Um, No official documents, just a text box. Right. Um, So I give them a little bit more credence there. But I I think you're right, Chris. It's an emerging trend that's happening. Um, I don't think we want to be harsh on our Canadian university. I just want to make the point that it is in fact like a, a major player we're discussing it's not you know a uh, no name school from nowhere that kind of eric was alluding to with some of these publishers potentially right so those more predatory in traditional sense um we're we're seeing kind of these mainstream players actually doing it so
0: well it, it, you know it, it's it's uh when you first told me about uh we'll say unnamed canadian university x doing this i was horrified because so I, for this here's a side here's a sideline Here, here's a related thing that people might not know I, my, one of my long time past ca- times is gaming in fact i have a big excel spreadsheet of all the digital and physical games i've owned and i've recently hit like 300 it's like a ridiculous hundreds of thousands of hours of games one of the things i hate the most trends in games is what we call pay to win, which is that you have these online games where it's a real slog to get good. Your character has to level up or whatever. But if you just pay us $500, you don't have to play the game. You can get all the special equipment and then you can just go in online. This is how like eight year olds who have like rich parents, uh, just dominate people like me who actually have some skill online because they've basically gotten invincibility uh, in an online game. That's what they call pay to win. If you don't want to get better through effort, you can pay to win. Now, I don't have to play those games. That's a market economy. I have that choice. But it's different when it's a publicly funded institution that is theoretically publicly funded So they don't have to do practices like that to compete. The public funds those things uh, like they fund museums and art galleries. So there is a space for them to experiment and fail and do things without having to compete in a market economy for the public good. So the idea of a pay to win education system is, is almost as frightening, if not more so than the pass fail. Imagine if you had both. I mean, what, what if we implement a pass? <laughs> well, yeah, pay for pass fail or, or the system goes to pass fail. So nobody can really know what separates a bare pass versus a successful pass. So then it becomes, did you pass and do you have the cash? Which if you talk about the idea of equity and equality, or either of those, which are different, um, the whole idea of education is that people who are really smart, whether they come from a rich background or not, have at least in that realm, an equal playing ground for opportunity. The idea of pay to enroll seems, uh, for a publicly funded, listen, the university of Phoenix wants to do that. Or if like E Cornell wants to do that, fine, whatever, but a publicly funded major Canadian university or British university or American university. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that just, it just goes against why they're publicly funded to begin.
2: And I don't think it's a new trend, Eric. Like you, you talk about the Ivy Leagues doing this. You talk about, but it's common knowledge, right? Large bursary and you pay to admit. Um, I don't know if that's just a phenomenon of government funding and kind of the socioeconomic policies of our time where things get there. But I know even from a lot of the student advocacy groups bring them back again have always discussed how stringent budgets are and how difficult it is and we're having you know discussions about increase of tuition and what's the value of tuition and um, on and on and on I think there's a lot of complex nuance to examining the issue I don't think it's uh, and I I don't think you're doing this but I don't I think it's important to not be unfair to these institutions necessarily I Mm I think it's a bad practice but there is a cause for it
1: well, and I think part of it is also just the response to the current economic situation and finances, right? Uh, I mean, I, you're, Chris, you actually brought it to my attention that there's some of these degrees are just using buzzwords like digital transformation and other things, which I, I, I <laughs> Sorry, thought... It, I
0: can't have a keep straight face.
1: <laughs> but I, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? Like, I, actually, this past semester, I even had a student of mine Uh, who was considering doing a master's in international business. And the first thing that came to mind in, in my head was Men in Black, and, uh, you know, even uh, Chris and I were uh, joking, maybe they should get Will Smith and Chris Hemsworth uh, to go and do the advertising for these programs. But
2: they even want a hundred grand that... now. That's like they got Will Smith and Chris. I am in. I'll pay to admit
1: all day. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, it, it was funny because, I mean, that that degree program, it's something that's been offered for a while out in Europe. So it was unfamiliar to me. And now all of a sudden, some of these universities here in Canada are also offering it, Um, but in my mind, I I basically advise the student, and I've been advising you as well, Chris, that uh, back when I did my MBA, there wasn't an accelerated MBA program for uh, uh, people who have done an undergraduate in business, and so what the accelerated MBA is, uh, is basically where you only have to do the business courses uh, that you haven't already taken on a graduate level, and so you can finish it faster taking less courses and it becomes uh, less costly. So within most of these institutions, they can go and do it within a year. And uh, it was funny because I was, again, I haven't had to look into any of these degree programs for a long time. So I'm searching around and then all of a sudden, you know, whether it's Instagram or uh, other social media platforms, they're going and bombarding me with various (laughs) master's programs. (laughs) And so it it just gives you an idea of, uh, you know, how much they can go and basically do this micro targeting based on your search behavior and other kind of parameters. And uh, if they really, if they had siphoned off some of my material, they would have already seen, I already have an MBA. So they probably shouldn't waste their advertising dollars on me. But, you know, especially for somebody like yourself, Chris, who's, you know, considering doing graduate work now, uh, I think personally it is a good You know um opportunity right now especially with all the uncertainty because when else are you going to have this amount of flexibility to go and complete your education where you can uh, you know do it at your own pace conceivably well i mean this wasn't part of the predictions but i i think uh, probably all of 2021 is most likely going to be through online remote delivery and uh, it, it doesn't take much to kind of come to that conclusion either, because uh, at the end of the day, the vaccine, the the government's plan is to go and have everybody vaccinated by the end of September. So, realistically, we can't go and just plan. Well, maybe it'll happen or it won't. So there probably will be announcements where we're going to go and have fall 2021 being online delivered as well.
2: And I. Dear buzzword comment, Chris, and I'm using this as a segue to our number one as well. The number of terminologies and pop-up degrees, predatory degrees that are using these buzzwords and coin terms. I I remember seeing Masters of Accounting that were MAC, MACC, uh, Masters of Finance that were MFIN. Like, w- what do these degrees really mean? And the number of institutions that are willing to offer them, particularly early in an increasingly... Um, democratized kind of educational world where online degrees are being normalized. And, and I think education is great. That should be kind of encouraged specialization. You know, we don't need to have the power of globalization means we don't have to have physical in-person classes. You need to learn something for that. Someone specializes in the Swiss to date are the best at hospitality management. I, I I'd argue almost irrefutably. If you want to learn from them all about hospitality while you're in Canada without having to go there. By all means, I think that's fantastic. When we start talking about some of these other odd degrees and oddball um, kind of predatory buzzword terms that are trying to, you know, not necessarily entrap, but the, the, the value becomes suspect in traditional academic circles, especially, and even in professional and, and, and industri- industrial ones as well, how we kind of analyze these, which leads us to our kind of final point of how, how do we address All this and what is the alternative or the opportunity that's presented um eric you want to take us away
0: well i i I will i I want to say that with the predatory degrees thing it's unfortunate there's nothing wrong with micro targeting and using data to if you know if you find you know outstanding people I, i don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing i think it's only problematic it becomes problematic if if there's so many predatory degrees and such an explosion particularly in graduate online degrees That it becomes like a fake news scenario where you don't know which is a legit one and which one you don't and then that makes it really difficult for doctoral programs of who do we admit who do we don't and then the basically becomes inevitably a tiered system kind of like the journal system where you know you publish in the top journals okay we don't really have to think about it anymore if you publish in mid-tier it requires more consideration and we don't really consider or weight. the bottom ones as much for tenure and things like that it becomes a class system it also obfuscates. Um, innovative degrees that are both online and face-to-face that have been around for a long time, but will now sound like the buzzword degrees that are coming out of nowhere. An example that I think of, there's a really good program, allegedly, that's been around for over 10 years at University of British Columbia called the MACT program. It's the Masters of Education Technology, and they have two different streams. And in fact, you can even do a graduate certificate for someone who already has a master's degree, or you can go on and do a full master's and you can transition between the two. Apparently it's an excellent program, but unfortunately specialized programs like this, I can see getting kind of lumped in to the explosion and other, in other degrees. And I think I will get to number one now. So the our number one prediction, as I think as a result of perhaps targeting from universities and as a result of budget cuts and as a result of Um, the need for uh, greater supplementary materials or greater education or flexibility, I think you're going to have, as our number one prediction, uh, far more alternative uh, education programs. And what I mean by alternative is alternative to large universities or colleges or institutions like that. You could call them alternative accreditations. Uh, That's a bit of a misnomer because whether they're accredited by a government body or professional organization is somewhat irrelevant if industry accepts them as equivalents to traditional university or college degrees. So we've seen this already. Uh, Google has rolled out a certificate. I believe it's like an IT networking certificate. Uh, They've partnered with Coursera. They're going to roll out more in programming. They're going to consider those as equivalent to university degrees when they hire internally for their company. It's kind of the modern day version, ironically enough, as McDonald's University. McDonald's is famous for having a pathway where someone who started flipping burgers can work their way into corporate offices at their headquarters by going through their program training programs. And they have actually a very long history of doing that. It's actually quite amazing. I think you're going to see that more and more. I think Microsoft and For sure, I think in 2021, Microsoft will roll out something similar, some sort of certification certificate, maybe Apple. They're pretty, Apple's pretty slow moving, but I think eventually, if it's not 2021, it'll be later. They're going to get on that bandwagon. Uh, You will probably see more non-university degree equivalent programs from LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, things like that. Uh, I, I think that you're going to see a lot of competition to traditional universities and they're going to be less than a 10th of the price. And I'll give you a concrete example. I have many colleagues who, well, a lot of them have degrees, but they all went into web development and computer programming, and none of them have a computer programming or web development degree. They taught themselves. It really comes down to, can you program or can you not? And many of them have learned on Team Treehouse. That's where I learned to program, do web development. That's a long time hobby of mine. Uh, Udemy just had a their kind of annual sale or a big sale. I think it's every year. I got a 100 hour course on React JavaScript for 14 bucks. Now, I could have gone to a college or continuing education and taken that for maybe six or $800 for one course. But it's not as much content as a high-quality, premium, pre-recorded, self-paced, asynchronous 100-hour course. In fact, I bought two. I bought Intro to JavaScript just as a refresher um, because I've done some, but I'm not an expert. So I'm going to work my way through 200 hours of course material is my goal. And they said that that's going to – that they – now take their guarantee with a grain of salt, but no experience required. If you can do HTML and CSS, which I can very well, and other, as Bootstrap as well as other things, you have an advantage. But from knowing nothing to being competent, like uh, very well um, rounded in terms of using JavaScript, that's their that's their so called guarantee. They also have like thirty day money back guarantees on their online courses, which isn't really enough time to work through it to know that. It's certainly not as long as the ad drop date at a university course, but I don't know. I think, you know, Team Treehouse started offering a credential in addition to their pay monthly online platform, which is a superb online training platform, probably the best for coding. And they offer, I think you can get a, if you work through a whole program, you can get the credential if you pay like 200 bucks or something, that's a very inexpensive degree equivalent. And I'm really interested to see not only what pop up, but what companies are going to say, yeah, we'll take that.
2: I To that point too, Eric, I think there's predatory online Udemy, Coursera type courses offered all the time.
0: Well, oh, they steal from other platforms too. So I'm not saying they're well,
2: perfect. No, of course. I'm, I'm also talking to specifically, um, you know, I don't think I'll name the site, but I've seen ads where this is a thousand dollar course on sale today for $19.99 only, right? Uh, and it's what are yeah. you really buying? Um, there, there's a lot of those. So buyer beware, as you say, free market.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I hundred percent agree. I mean, what I bought from Udemy, I think usually is about one hundred and seventy five bucks for the hundred hours. So it, it certainly wasn't like a thousand dollars discounted. I've seen it full price before, but they go on sale very frequently. It's kind of like. Uh, when Walmart says, you know, this is we're the lowest price in town, it's on sale for $9.99. Well, it was never anything more than $9.99. They just said it was on sale for nine ninety nine. dollars And it was always $9.99. It was never $29.99, that kind of a thing. But I think the difference is, is that if you take a course at a university and it sucked, you're out like a thousand bucks. Where if you take an online course that was twenty dollars, the risk is low. So I think for some people, uh it's worth um getting through or trying a couple of so-so courses, but they may hit one that's really, really good. And I, again, Team Treehouse is a bit more expensive. So, and it's, in my opinion, is not. It's about $25 a month, but that's very, very inexpensive. Even and if you buy annually, it's much cheaper. And that's some of the best online learning I've ever done and i just think that what is the risk for somebody to give it a try right i mean a university is a big upfront cost it's thousands and thousands of dollars if you buy 500 dollars worth of online courses from udemy and a variety of places and they're all kind of ho hum you're only out 500 bucks you're not out you know 6000 or 7000
1: yeah no absolutely i mean even to that uh, and uh, you, i you know i recall uh universities like stanford for example they've been offering for free, just, uh, you know, it's open courses for uh, developing iOS apps. And, uh, you know, you have the full lectures, uh, the notes, the assignments. But again, it it just comes down to, uh, you know, somebody's willingness to take the initiative to go through and learn for themselves. And, I mean, we were having this discussion before starting uh, this recording and, you know, you'd be kind of uh, alarmed at just what you can go and find just by going and Googling, right? If it was, I recall back in the day, I was actually chatting with a friend of mine, let's say going and repairing a vehicle, you know, now you can go and find YouTube videos on exactly what the process is. And whereas before you would have needed to go and buy a book with a full on manual to figure out uh, how to diagnose an issue.
0: Well, you know, you make it. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I had, or, or relying on experts who have, because the domain knowledge is so expensive, uh, relying on, on people. I mean, a certain controversial academic made the, um, prediction that a lot of aspects or segments of the legal profession would disappear because there's so many ways to do a contract without a lawyer so many kits, so many options, even through a paralegal or like uh, there's low end, I don't want to say low end because it degrades it, but there's tasks where you don't need access to, uh, a domain expert necessarily anymore. You can do things for a lot cheaper and that's kind of a huge shift, right?
1: Well, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's just going to be a big, um, kind of disruption to the the industry. I mean, you already see it in the legal side of things. Does it really make sense? Like I've seen with some of my clients like to buy, a, let's say you get a unanimous shareholders agreement. I've seen clients pay 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 bucks. And I've looked at them they're pretty much templates that the paralegals have developed they kind of tailor it a little bit and at what point do people start pushing back instead of paying, you know, $500 an hour for these, um, you know, uh, legal contracts or what have you will they just go and maybe get a subscription or find something online and so uh, again uh, I don't know I mean that's where like the the legal profession I think is going to see a huge disruption especially with uh, Technologies uh, such as um, machine learning and artificial intelligence coming into play. I think the same can be said for, let's say, the accounting field. Right? Uh, Again, it's it's not rocket science, but I think this is where some of these uh, uh, professions they're going to have to adapt. And what are you going to be paying these professionals for? It's going to be for, you know, providing st- strategic advice and, um, you know, it's not going to be the the day-to-day kind of minutiae of bookkeeping or preparing contracts and signing documents.
0: Or like a GP, a medicine.
1: Yeah. Even I mean, that, how,
0: long, he, how long am I going to have to go to a doctor to get a prescription for a medication I've had for 10 years instead of going right to a pharmacist? Like, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I see some of these things as kind of being inevitable because they've been on people's minds forever. Like it's not that hard to get over some of these tasks. It doesn't mean that the profession is obsolete, but it means that perhaps that profession spends more time doing more complex things. Yeah. Maybe it frees people up from having to do minutia and they can do more innovation. It's not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at on the medical side of things, it's already been proven where, uh, you know, through artificial intelligence, because you got, uh, the amount of sheer amount of data being able to let's say detect uh, some type of cancer or maybe there's something like just based on looking at the eye and the optical nerve you can go and detect uh, that there is this uh, you know diagnosis and again it's going to be up to the doctor to go and figure that out now you're using that technology that machine learning that artificial intelligence as a tool to go and make that diagnosis and doing it a lot more accurately
0: We will see. It's, it's interesting. I, I don't know what else to say about the alternative degrees. Um, does anyone have last comments about that?
2: Well,
1: I think, uh, you know, you've already touched on it, uh, Eric. At the end of the day, if a, a company like Google, which a lot of people probably want to go and work for, if they're willing to go and take this, you know, it's basically, uh, I believe it's even been a free... Uh, Course offering through Coursera and they're willing to go and hire that person, that certainly changes the whole dynamic. I mean, uh, why would I go and pay however amount of money when you can go and do that? But that being said, I mean, online courses have been around forever. There's been free courses available forever. You have those MOOCs with the, the massive open online courses and, you know, why haven't they taken place? And it comes down to that it takes a lot of initiative right I mean I I look at the students even uh, looking at my I was uh, getting some emails right now uh, we've gotten our student evaluations back and uh, obviously you can never please students entirely anyways but uh, one of the things that they're missing is the the lecture side of things and whereas uh, you know if you had the classroom there even if you didn't read the textbook maybe you're going to go and cover off that material and now you're you know you you don't have that as a crutch and you have to actually take the initiative yourself to Read through the content do the the work I mean some of my biggest issues that I had this semester it I, I don't get what uh, why students just they don't go follow instructions if they just followed instructions just that would be half the battle and you would probably do very well on your uh, deliverables but um, again I, I think it, you know these alternative accreditations it's great especially for places where in the world where we don't have people who can maybe go and afford uh, the education. And now that offers a path to uh, maybe uh, actually make things a little bit more equitable. So I guess we'll see, but uh, uh, you know, This took a lot longer than I expected. (laughs) I'd I'd never thought that we would spend like two hours going and talking about all these predictions. We thought, no problem, 60 minutes, that gives us, uh, you know, six minutes apiece. And, uh, you know, we went down uh, the rabbit hole. But uh, at at the end, I say that this uh, next year, I think it's going to be a promising year. um, And we have nowhere else to go than up
0: nowhere else to go than up and we will revisit i think at some point to see maybe at the end of next year where our predictions were
2: yeah late next year maybe we a... can
0: do a one yeah we could do a back-to-back maybe a one hour did we where did we get it right where did we get it wrong and then maybe we'll do an hour try to keep it to an hour next time of predictions this is our first run yeah it's
2: gonna say Eric, it's gonna be four or five hours next year at the marathon break it into two parts
0: well our best Oh, our, one of our most successful episodes, in fact, I believe the most successful episode is well over an hour, if not close to two. So it does not, uh, neg- I realize that for some people don't like the longer episodes, we try to keep them to an hour, but um, it, it's certainly not a lot of data to support length is a determining factor.
1: Well, and you're more than welcome. I, I won't have hurt feelings if you go in double speed listening to <laughs> this episode.
0: That's right. That's no problem. I do that too. Uh,
2: the only comment I wanted to make as a final thing on the um, alternate accreditations, I think all this is really going to do is increase the push for students to, to take on more. We've already talked about this and how the master's programs have become kind of the new normal. Um, a, a master's degree is the, the bare minimum. It's replaced what the bachelor's used to be. I think all this is really going to do is add on, okay, you need a master's and then in addition to any of your professional, like Chris and I from the own business or your CPA, CFA, but also you need these 10 U to me and Coursera accreditations to work for us at Google. I think that's all it's really going to do.
0: Can I make a counter prediction and we'll see if we're right? Go for it. I think the opposite. I think if the degrees turn out, turn out the alternatives the way I'm thinking, um, it'll be better for universities in the long run. Because universities will not have to do predatory practices. They won't have to worry about heading out really tough grades. Uh, they, I, I think, uh, yes, they may have cutbacks to university staff sizes, faculty sizes, if you don't have the same enrollment. Because the low, I don't like to say low end in terms of low quality, but the most accessible low end of the education spectrum, according to the Clayton Christensen thesis, the the, the uh, competitors coming in at the bottom of the market are what pull market share away from the low end, so right now, there's a lot of people who feel they have to do a degree that maybe don't, and it's possible that while in the past we used to have a high school diploma or maybe you took a couple of university or college courses, or perhaps you have a diploma degree from a college that was equivalent to have a very successful career. a degree is not necessary for everything, maybe making really good quality online programs will take the pressure away uh, from everyone having to forego four years of opportunity cost, whether they actually need to for what they're interested in or not. And I wonder if that'll allow universities to say, okay, that's there for people who don't need it. And maybe degrees are become more exclusive again as a result, because there is another opportunity. There's a big opportunity cost. And I think you've mentioned this before, Chris, if someone has to spend four years, think about the economy. Think if you look at the productivity that a person brings or the potential productivity that they bring to the economy over their entire working career, there's an enormous uh, opportunity cost to both the economy, and also, uh, you know, family development, all that stuff. If people have to forego seven, eight, 10 years of their life to go to higher education, they're just starting everything that people used to do at 25, now closer to 40, right? It's, and, and even with people living longer, there's a huge economic cost. They might not be able to retire as early, or they may have kids later. There may be a lot of things with that. So I wonder if the, it'll actually have the opposite effect.
2: My only thought about that, Eric, is I guess kind of almost to clarify my point, too, is where we end up is Google doesn't have a limited amount of jobs. When they take over the world one day, they will. As of right now, they do not. Um, And when they have a single job opening and you compare a person with a degree as well as the alternative streams and a host of them compared to an individual that just only has the individual streams. I don't think that's enough. And I don't think that that's going to really make that differentiation um, that quickly. I I, I think that there's going to be um, an adaptation by universities. As much as we give academics, we call them laggards, and we we make fun of them for not adapting, they're going to pivot, and they're going to um, Mm -hmm. be able to provide the needs for these companies, and there's going to be a, a significant change. They're going to respond to the market demand. And I think that... Regardless, like this is never really truly going away. I think, yeah, we might see like a 10% decrease in enrollment overall. But I think ultimately, when you talk about people who are trying to work for Fortune 500 companies, typically also have ambitions of trying to get into management and going up the, the 25 rungs of management as well, right? So talk about that. I think that there's a competitive nature to kind of the overall stack and i think realistically it's just going to be another thing that we add to the laundry list of things that you need to, to do to get to um, this particular hurdle yeah but um, I, I totally see your point i think that's true for a lot of um perhaps more practical skill sets well and it and, could be both
0: right i mean this is just the first rollout yeah. right i mean like the, the 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 certificate that google rolled out was for like a network analyst so maybe that's a position where you can be very successful where a degree has diminishing marginal returns Right, and they don't really care. Uh, they don't pay enough in that particular position because it's an entry-level IT job, even at Google, to where they can really justify someone having a degree because of a the overhead costs. They wouldn't pay enough. You know, I wonder sometimes too if companies that if they want like a junior developer, and particularly in the United States, if someone has like a hundred thousand dollars in in student loan debt, it's far worse there than other parts of the world. Can they? Are, there, there are some companies that are saying for these low-level positions they're having trouble justifying asking for a degree with inevitably people are going to take on that debt when they're only paying so much, especially for an entry level position. I I think you could have both. I think you may have more education as people need it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people have to get their foot in the door with the company by having a degree or a master's. They maybe have to do that later on and maybe get some funding from the company or they make enough money to where that becomes more affordable. But to do that from the outset is a sacrifice of experience. And I have heard from people I know that work at places like Microsoft that uh, there's a lot of turnover in those entry-level programs because inevitably those people have a ton of debt and they just move on to the next highest paying job.
1: You know, one thing that I wish uh, that maybe this is, I don't know if it's a forecast or what have you, but um, uh, especially looking at like the doctoral programs, I wish there was actually more like part-time No residency PhDs that, you know, especially I think it comes down to for a lot of people like for myself, it's uh, it's basically if you look at um, the Maslow's hierarchy, like it comes down to like a self-actualization thing and really that opportunity costs to go and take like four years out of your life to go and, you know, start everything. The average is six. Yeah, it's like, well, four is the minimum, right? Like three to four would be like a very fast-paced. But uh, to go and take that much time off, uh, you know, the diminishing returns, I mean, you basically are uh, overqualified at that point. And the only uh, place where it would actually be, a uh, you know, an asset is in academia, where if you do want to go and become like a tenured... Uh, professor or what have you but you know I, I think something like that if there was um, you know the opportunity like I I know for a business for example the only PhD program that is part-time from when I looked at it years ago was at Carleton University in Canada and that was it and even for that one I believe you had to go and travel out there for a little bit uh, but you know it's a uh, It's just something that I think, you know, the universities, they need to be a little bit more uh, responsive to the changes in uh, basically uh, behavior of uh, and maybe the market needs as well. Right. And it's the same thing. Like I look at uh, like accelerated MBAs. They never had them before. And it really it makes sense because an MBA degree was meant for people who had a technical background, like let's say an engineer or a scientist that wanted to go and now move into management position, but they didn't have the business acumen or business knowledge. So this was their kind of bridge. But for somebody who has a undergrad in business, you already have covered off much of that information. So now uh, I think that's actually a good uh, uh, kind of pivot or response where you can go and finish it within a year. I mean, there's some places like U of A is 10 months, which is, you know, pretty... Uh, impressive, Yeah. But uh, the faculty of extension, right? Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, it, 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 the mod,
0: it's a mod, you raise a good point. It's a modularity issue. That's why I brought up that master's of ed tech, which I've heard is a great program at UBC because you can do a, part-time or online it's online because it's all about online education right and you can do a graduate certificate so that's for someone like me who has a master's degree and would like to learn a little bit more maybe he's on the fence about doing another master's degree because you know how many master's degrees do you need but then oh but I could I could take a few courses and have a graduate certificate which is actually quite valuable but that can be applied directly to this other thing so you can kind of stack it right And I think if I want, I would love to do a doctorate, but it's going to, I would love it if it could take me 10 years or eight. Now my supervisor may have retired and passed on by the time I'm finished, but I mean, ultimately it would be nice to be able to chip away at the courses because like you said, it's not a requirement to be employed, at least not yet. Um, But it would be something I'd like to do. So Especially for a thesis-driven program, I've never really understood why there's such a time limit. I mean, do one course a year. But a good topic, maybe modularity of degrees, for another another episode. Well, should we call it here, folks? Okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, for taking part in this very long 2021 forecast. Uh, I appreciate you both adding your comments. Uh, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. goodful discussion. I and mean, then you've got to wish our listeners a uh, happy new year. And thank you for tuning in over the past. What is it now? Eight months? Nine months?
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah, I think long? so yeah time flies especially once you start getting over like 30 40 it it goes by even faster so (laughs) yeah (laughs) i still feel like i'm 25 though
0: yeah me too i'll just tell people i'm 25 i think i can still get away with it it's the beauty of just having
2: voices right
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's right thanks again folks for listening and uh we'll see uh everyone at our next episode You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.